Leaders' Questions with Stuart Lancaster. Thanks to Cisco Systems at Exertus Ireland, providing a secure, intelligent platform for digital business. To hear more, visit intelligentit.ie. All right, you're very welcome along to another Leaders' Questions with Stuart Lancaster. Our guest this week is the Air CEO, Caroline Lennon. Good afternoon to you. Caroline, how are you? Hi, good, Jerry, thank you. So this is um, a slightly different one from some of the ones that we've done up to this point, Stuart. Um, Caroline is uh, head of a much bigger organisation than any of the kind of conversations we've had so far. What is it particularly about the leadership of the big organisations that, that interests you? Well, it's more, it's more um, I met Caroline uh, when I arrived in Dublin uh, last year, and obviously since then, she's then been promoted into a new role, which obviously is quite, I'm quite interested in. Um, and contra- the, pre- the previous people who we've spoken to, I've always worked with, um, or had a relationship with, whereas Caroline I've not worked with. Um, so I'm interested to know Caroline's story to, to rise to become... Um, the leader of um, such a big organisation, what inspired her, what, what's her background and, and what we can all learn from, from her journey. Yeah, so I've, I've seen you talk about leadership before and um, loads of different strands of it. Do you have a, a defined philosophy of leadership? I think it would be hard to say that it's, uh, it's defined, but there's a few kind of for me there's a few principles uh, it's you know the way you talk about sometimes people say about you know leading from the front I actually don't believe in that I think really good leaders actually lead from the back and they and they lead from the back because they have a view of the team and really it is all about the team and I think it's about you know pulling a group of people together getting them motivated but behind a particular objective and you know and helping and guiding them on that journey now it doesn't mean as a leader you don't have an opinion but it isn't about you being out there in front I think it is about that corralling and that moving forward of that the collective and that idea that the sum of the parts you know is better than all those individual contributions and when your opinion is completely at odds with the opinion of the, the group yeah, no, I'm very happy for people to disagree with me. In fact, you know, I would encourage that. Um, I don't always have all the right ideas. You know, I like healthy debate. Uh, but if I have to call it, I call it. And, you know, as you get more senior, you know, and actually that is the beauty of being the leader, that you can get to call it. But, uh, you know, but I think healthy contributions for everyone and different views are absolutely paramount for, you know, good team performance. Yeah, just on that, what do you do when you're... Your team are like, no, 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 no. We, we actually fully disagree with you on this one. I'm sure it happens rarely, but it happens <laughs> um, sometimes. No, it's collaborative. It's always collaborative. You've got to make sure, you know, the art of leadership obviously is trying to influence as well perception and, and the, the way, the journey that you're going to go. So, um, I, I, yeah, I agree with Caroline. You know, the, the only way you can really create healthy debate is to create trust, first of all. Um, and I think if you create trust with the playing group, and you then have done your work and you've you know, made your point about the, the route we want to go down, um, then it's about influencing them and trying to get them on board with what your ideas are. Um, and then from there, um, making sure that we, when we agree or disagree, when we're in the privacy of a team room, whatever, we, we all walk out together in agreement of the route we're going to go down. So, um, you know, obviously for me now, I'm not in the number one position. So, you know, Leo makes the final call and my job as a, as a supporter of Leo as the head coach is to make his decisions work. Um, yet when I was the head coach of England, you know, that's, I would make the decision and I needed, um, you know, Andy Farrell and Graham Rodger, et cetera, to, to, to make my, help my, my decisions work. So, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's part and parcel of being the leader. You know, it's, uh, there's a great quote, isn't there, about, you know, leaders are paid to make a decision and, and people who want, who, you know, managers um, are happy to give a, um, position, but never have to make the decision. It's a big difference. Yeah. Um, which is more enjoyable? Um, 
being the leader. <laughs> uh, being the leader, but it's tough. It's tough. It's it's it's, it's lonely, and it's um, you know going from um, number two to number one is a big, big step, and I don't think people really appreciate it until you've actually done it. Yeah. And then when you've when you've done it, and then you're the one responsible for the decisions and the accountability of the decision, and you know some of the tough decisions that you have to make, it is tough and it's quite lonely as well. Um, but and that's why some people are quite happy to be managers, and there's no problem with that. But uh, yeah, I think if you want to try and drive something and create a change or um, inspire people towards a vision for the future, then you need to be in that leadership position. Yeah, you, you literally just experienced that. I mean, I don't know if it's necessarily number two to number one, but something similar, you've been promoted from within to, to, to the top job. Yeah, so I mean, I think it's fantastic to be in that decision-making spot. You know, spent a lot of my career and, you know, had senior roles in air. And it's like Stuart said, it's all about trying to influence the decision and, you know, bringing my sort of position or the area that I represent position to the table and trying to drive that kind of influence. But today to be in the spot where you get to call it, I find it actually really exciting and quite liberating. Uh, it is a bit lonely. This is the first job I've ever had in office, ever. And uh, I kind of look around the office and there's no one else there other than me. And I'm like, who do I talk to? Because I, I think I used to have a, you know, people would always say that I have a good handle on what's going on in the organisation, how people are feeling, what's the general vibe. And that's, I think, because I sat out among everybody yeah. and I listened to everybody and people might come over and have a chat with me about something random and you pick something else up. So that's one of the things, you know, being a CEO was maybe a little bit more isolated and I have to make a real effort now to to get out there and, you know, and chat to people and kind of, you know, it's still engaged because I'd hate to lose that touch with the organisation in terms of what's really going on for people. Yeah, one of the other pieces of advice that I saw you give people in the past was that you should be involved in things that aren't your job in the company so that, you know, if there is a social committee or whatever, because then you present a different person to your colleagues but equally you see them differently and you just also find out more about how the business works. I think that's absolutely true and I, and I also I think you know customers are interested in companies not just for the product they sell and how that works and how cheap it is or what, what price it is they're also interested more and more in the role that that company plays in society so I think it's really really important that you know a company has kind of a social license to operate and and to do that you have to have active kind of you know corporate social responsibility initiatives and i think everybody needs to get involved in that because it does open up new avenues it does make people see in a different light and it just brings another dimension to your job and i always say this i say this to the graduates all the time you know through all my involvement over the years in those kind of initiatives I got to interact with senior people way before my job would have allowed me to. You know, these guys could have been three levels above me, but because they were interested in the same kind of initiatives I was, I got to interact with them. And I think that was usually important to me, developing my network and my relationships in organisations. So I would always say, you know, I, I always worry about people, you know, even at interview, when they come in and they just have a really narrow focus. Mm. I'm always interested in people who have a bit of a broader focus because I think they bring more and they're up for more, you know. And again, that idea of a leader is, you know, knowing in your heart and soul that what the, got the organisation to here is not going to take them to there and that relentlessness about that and that's because you're looking at different focuses trying to bring other things in and I like to see that in people I, I worry about people who are very too single-minded and that narrow focus I think it limits them Can you talk to us a bit about then the stuff that you do yourself to make sure that you aren't just narrowly focused on the single thing Well I suppose you know I've, you know, I've been in air for eight years and I've had various roles and uh, but none of the roles would have naturally been the role to lead the CSR agenda for air. You know, I mean, that wasn't, you know, I, you know, I, I wasn't HR. I wasn't where it would naturally fit. But when I went into air, there was no CSR agenda. You know, we had a strong and fantastic relationship with the Special Olympics Ireland, an amazing organisation, but we weren't really doing anything with it. We had no policies on the environment in terms of, you know, our footprint. 
print and um, we didn't we, you know we didn't have policies to let staff you know take some t- days for volunteering you know what would happen if charities wrote to us if it landed on my desk I'd read it and if I you know I might grab some funds if it landed on someone else's desk it might go nowhere yeah. so I suppose I, I set up the CSR strategy team you know, in air, and I'm hev- I'm a patron of Special Olympics Ireland, heavily involved in that. But you know, me and my family, you know, we are part of the um, air spectrum, which is our you know our LGBT group. I'm involved with She Leads, which is our female diversity group. So I don't just kind of say let's get these all set up. I personally get involved in them. You know, I dragged all my family to Pride last year. I dragged them on every year to all the air runs. You know, running for Special Olympics. I think last year between us all, myself and my husband did two half uh, did a half marathon each. The kids all did 10k. You know, because I, I kind of want to put my money where my mouth is, but I get a hundred times more out of that than I actually put in. And I also get to, again, from air, I get to interact with people yeah. that I wouldn't meet in head office. You know, when we do the run, there's guys from all over the country. When we did Pride, engineers from over the country that I've never met came along, you know, and walked with us in Pride. So it just opens your vista and you get a sense of, you know, what's needed in the organization and what's working and what's not working. And who the people are. Yeah, exactly. And what drives them and what motivates them. And I, I remember talking to one of the guys the first time he did Pride and he said, I've worked here 30 years and never, ever thought I'd see Air sponsoring Pride, yeah. let alone an Air float and four members of the Air senior management team on the float or walking along with the float. And, you know, and to be able to just pick that up, you know, fresh and, you know, just talking to somebody is amazing. You know, you can read that in a report or you can read it in some typed feedback, but it's not the same as engaging with somebody and really sensing what it means to them. Yeah, so for you, leadership was about getting involved at, at, at like, I, it's not grassroots level, but actually on a, on a micro level with the initiatives that were actually going to be how the company thinks about itself. Well, I think it was about having a, a position and an opinion that these things, as well as the, rec- you know, like I joined AIR and we went into examinership. I mean, I wrote the consumer plan that was approved by the examiner you know that's in the school of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger and coming out of that we had a plan that was absolutely you know when I looked at it I wasn't worried about the numbers I was just worried about all the things we had to do to make that plan work you know we had to build a fibre network we had to get 4G spectrum we had to roll out a network we could take 100 million a cost out we had to do, I'm just like, God you would never plan to do those all in the same 18 months and realising that's important and I can do that all day, every day, but also knowing that actually that's not the only thing that's important because we have to build this organisation. We have to have, you know, highly functioning, motivated organisation when we've done all that. And there are other things that are important there. So I'm going to develop a CSR strategy. I'm going to pull all this stuff together. I'm going to put a team in place because I think it's important and I think it's going to make a difference. Yeah. I was chatting to Stuart earlier on about this and it was... um you know, the identity of the Leinster team or the Union team or the Leeds team was always very clear. Everybody was part of that and, you know, either you were in good form or you weren't and you wanted the same outcome as everybody else or maybe you were recalcitrant a little bit. But in an organisation with 3,000 people or however many it was uh, originally, how do you stop them just thinking of the company as the man and the check and actually get them engaged? And it, it sounds like that's Yeah, because I think you pick, you, you know, identify initiatives that are important, that are important for their communities. And, you know, you show that they're important to you as well. And, you know, you, you show by doing in terms of being in, in the middle of that. I think that's, you know, that's really important because I think everybody knows how to do their day job. But it has to be, I think it always feels more motivation to be part of something bigger than that, you know. The meaningful, and we always talk about the why, but that's kind of come up r- repeatedly. Is like yeah, why? it does, in, in, every, in every person we've spoken to. And, uh, yeah, the reason why we're all going to work hard for this team, you know, it's absolutely, for me, the leader's primary responsibility to drive that, develop that, uh, explain it to the people who work for the organisation so they can put self-interest to one side and put the, you know, the betterment of the organisation or the cause 
at the forefront. Um, and then if you do that, then let's say self-interest gets put to one side and, and everyone drives in the same direction. But it is the leader's responsibility, I think, to articulate that, to drive them towards that. And, uh, you know, I remember coming into Leinster and, you know, talking about what's our purpose, you know, what we're trying to achieve here you know, in terms of building a, you know, a, one of the top teams in Europe or the top team in Europe and striving for the fourth star and for the fifth star and, but also having a culture and identity that run deep through Leinster from top to bottom and we've got the, the best academy and, and everything else and uh, I was very, very lucky to come into a club and an environment that had all that in place. There are, you know, I've been around 12 premiership clubs in England, I've coached against international teams and there are very, very few places I've been to that I've, have got that um, um, as well aligned as, as Leinster. Yeah, it's funny how a lot of people would say CSR is a badge that they use as something and... Uh, like some people are very cynical about it let's pick the thing that's going to get us the most impact but ultimately unless you're doing it for meaningful reasons people are cynical they see through that it's like here's this thing that I'm doing to punch in but if it is meaningful to you and if it is something that pockets of the company can get behind and unite behind then it does really have the power to transform the culture really quickly yeah I, I believe that but I think it it can't be a badge you know it can't be a label because otherwise people do see through that I mean you know if you, you know, pick on the Special Olympics, you know, because, you know, this is a sporting show and, you know, Stuart's background, you know, and, and they would always say that they're a sporting organisation first and foremost. You know, we have a 33-year relationship with them, you know, and, and you know, if you look at their, their stats, you know, they are the best performing of all of the International Special Olympics, you know, movements, if you, you know, because I suppose the aim of Special Olympics is that everybody with intellectual disability would participate in sport. And I think the world average is 2%, European average is 3%. But in Ireland's over thirty percent, so they're, they've done massively well. Mm. Now I would say that you know airs involvement with them and the fact that we give them long term you know funding, we do all their IT stuff, we raise money for them every year. You know we sponsor now the the national games that are coming up. I'm volunteering out in Santry. You know that is definitely, and Matt would say that himself. That has contributed to that success. So that's not a badge. That's not something we've we've grabbed because it's cool or you know that's right you know and you know air staff take a lot of pride in that and you know and it's important to them that air, you know air is involved in those kind of things yeah even when the organization is going through great periods of change that's what you need can, it more than all then i think it, yeah you know. but it could be very easy to go okay well, i'm just going to look at this report here and uh, yeah, yeah. All the stuff that we've got in the next 18 months and we'll come back to that a little bit later so making the brain space to do that yeah but i think that's you know i think you need to recognize in tough times you know people need those things you know more than ever you know and it kind of keeps everyone you know pointing due north or wherever you need to go to you know so um you know we would have we would have done all that stuff through the post examinership and you know getting ourselves back on the kind of onto the kind of even ground we're on now um you know and, and i think that it was essential to have both of those when did you realize that was important how did you learn that i i don't know i mean i have been involved you know since i since i graduated and started working you know um i was involved in my first job in the church in general i was on the social committee you know you know, so it's not like I read a book and said, oh, my God, you know, starting your first job, you need to get in there. And, start, you know, but intuitively, I wanted to be involved and I wanted to be involved in, you know, in lots of things and maybe be in the heart and soul of the company a little bit. Um, so I started there and I've always kind of I've always kept it going, you know, and, I, you know, where it hasn't existed, I've set it up. Um, Were you in societies in college, that kind of stuff? Um, not so much. I, I think college was different for me because I came. I grew up on Kulik on the north side, and um, there was no history of going to college in, in my family. So I was the first one to go. I was seventeen. I didn't know which way it was up. I really didn't. Um, I did computer science because it was Ireland in the eighties, and I thought I'd get a job because there's definitely a bit of pragmatist in me as well. Uh, I had no money. I cycle over. So you know. 
and I had a boyfriend at, at home in Kulak. So I think I didn't really embrace that whole, you know, my I, like I did when I did my MBA, but not at that time. You know, I, you know, I, I know it sounds like I makes sound like an old crumbly, but it was like universities wasted on the young, you know, because it was wasted a little bit. I mean, I had a degree out of it, and it started yeah. me on my job, <laughs> yeah. but it didn't, you know. So you go back now, you'd do it differently. I would do do it differently, yeah, a bit more crack. Yeah, well, I definitely, you know, I hopefully have a bit more money as well, which would have been good. But it, you know, it was different. So I, no, it came when I started my job, you know, when I my first job out of college. And I did get a job. So I, it kind of was a bit right. I did get a job in the ages in Ireland with my, my IT degree. Um, and then I started getting involved in all those, those kind of things. Yeah. When, when was your leadership sense awakened? Um, so I, I, at school, I gravitated to leadership positions. I mean, I wasn't an A-star student by any stretch of imagination. Um, and, you know, I had some ups and downs and probably... <laughs> Around 16, 17, as I guess most uh, teenage boys got myself you know, in a bit of trouble with one or two things. Nothing too bad. Sure, don't worry. <laughs> Go on. Raising your eyebrows. <laughs> no, 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 no. It wasn't anything bad particularly. But anyway, I, I ended up becoming the, um, the captain of the rugby team and um, there was a head of school position and it was a boarding school and I, I had responsibility for running the sort of school prefect system who had to set the chairs up and you know, organisational stuff that I learned there. I went to um, teach a training college after my sports science degree and I was taught um, some great skills on communication and leadership by those, by those um, lecturers in, in teacher training. Um, and then during my 20s, obviously, I was, I was teaching. Um, and I was gravitating up to, you know, um, deputy head of year, that type of thing, as well as, um, you know, teaching PE. Um, but I reckon, well, it, I know exactly what it was, the turning point. So it was... On instinct until I was 32, and then I was um, invited onto a level five leadership course. So I'd done my level one, two, three, and four in rugby, and this level five was, you know, for the, for the international coaches uh, really. And and there were ten places, and there were uh, there were twelve places, sorry, and ten people were already on it, and the last two went out for application. So you know, everyone applied, and anyway, I managed to get down to the last five, and got down to the last two, and I got on the course, and it was at Ashridge Business School. And um, the course was less about technical, tactical, um, or the physiology of rugby, or the, you know, the conditioning, or everything else. It was about leadership and management. And it was that point that really began to open my eyes to the theory behind leadership and how to become a better leader, etc. Et and it opened some, you know, I did some personality profiles, so you know, more self-aware, and um, some books to read, some people to listen to, and that sort of opened the door, and I just pushed the door open from then on. And that coincided with you know, running the academy. So my, it was running my own little team, building my own team um, um, when I was sort of early 30s. And then the head coach resigned at Leeds and I took his job at 35. Um, and then I was in charge of a far bigger team. And then we got promoted to the Premiership and suddenly I was in the big, big, big boys league um, at 35. And um, so, the, yeah, I would, I would say that was the moment, really. But... Obviously, there's lots of moments in that in that journey. Yeah, you you kind of you, you build on the scaffolding on the way up. Yeah, yeah, and um, it was great though because it gave me the, let's say the theory behind the practice, and then gradually the more I read this book, then I moved to that book, and then I would um, contact someone and talk about leadership, um, and then you know just through experiences of joining the, the rugby union and dealing with boards and finance and you know all that sort of stuff, and then suddenly becoming the head coach and you deal with the media and commercial partners. And so it just grew, um, and um, yeah, I still, I still. That's why I'm fascinated in leadership now. I'm yeah. you know, fascinated in Caroline's story, you know, to go from, you know, a, a school on the north side that, that probably where no one goes to, well, university and, and what you did, and then how you got to where you are now. I mean, I, what happened in the, you know, after the first job? What, how have you? 
progressed as a leader and what have been the lessons you've learned along the way? Well, it's interesting. So, so I did my degree, as I said, in IT, went into my first job in financial services and got involved in, you know, the sort of social and community kind of activities in that organization and probably excelled at those and did okay in the job, but, you know, tottering along, not doing too badly. Um, and then, you know, I was doing it for a number of years and it was a technical job. So all my kind of customers were technical people, you know, you know, technical program for him or, you know, database updates for her or whatever. And then we were launching this, this, pro- this product. It was the first time, I don't know if you remember it, a time when everyone bought their insurance through brokers. Mm. And suddenly we were going to do this direct where people could, you know, and I was a business analyst on it. And that was the first time I'd ever been involved in anything where the customer was a person on the street who actually would decide whether they wanted to buy this or not or whether they leave their broker that they've had for 20 years. And I was really fascinated by that. Who's going to buy it? Is Stuart going to buy it? Is Jerry going to buy it? Where are they going to come from? Are women going to buy it? Are men going to buy it? You know, why? What, who's, what's, and uh, I said, you know, I've been doing the wrong thing. I've been working, you know, with databases and programs and... But I've never been dealing with customers and what they like and what they don't like. And but the company I was in at the time had no history at all of, you know, moving. You know, if you were an IT person, you're an IT person. They wouldn't give you a chance in marketing or you know, you know, move you into finance or whatever. So, and I had no finance background. All to school and into my degree had been kind of maths and sciences and all that sort of stuff. So I thought if I if I really want to do this, and I think I do because I feel really motivated by it. I'm going to have to educate myself. I'm going to have to add something to my... So I, I gave up my, my job, much to my mother's absolute horror. Because um, myself and my, my partner, husband now, my partner then, had just bought an apartment, first mortgage we ever had, and uh, gave up my job. I went back to Trinity full-time to do an MBA, and I absolutely loved it. Loved it. Completely different scenario than the UCD scenario. Are you still in your 20s at the stage? Um, I, yeah, late 20s. Right. Yeah, And uh, just really loved it and the, the A, I love Trinity I walk under those arches and I just feel motivated just I still do when I walk under there um, but I was you know a bit more grown up had a bit of money lived in town yeah. you know just it was class. a different world it was class absolutely <laughs> class it was great and but the thing about that why I picked that one that course well A I done my undergraduate in UCD was because there was a big company project part of it where they would you worked in teams and they would match you with a company and you do a whole market analysis on them, a company analysis, and come up with a recommendation. And the team I was in, we actually won that company project. But but that's so what I learned. So a I learned that I, I was finally in the spot where it just kind of ticked all my boxes. And b so we'd all paid to do this MBA and it was pretty pricey, at, you know, at the time. Yeah. Well, I paid myself. Some of them, their parents had paid, but you know, we, everyone had handed over cold hard cash. So, you know, so there's no boss and there's no boss in the teams and you've got to get a lot done. And we had Irish people and we had international people and we had men and women, all different personalities. And that was that was challenging because that's the first time I'd worked in a structure where there was nobody at the end who'd say, we're doing it this way. Yeah. And uh, and I found actually I was pretty good at, you know, managing, manoeuvring and getting us all to point, you know, in the in the one direction. And uh, and that idea of, you know, and I know I'm good at it now and it de- started to develop there. I'm, I'm very good at influencing people, even if they don't work for me. You know, you, I, I don't have to be your boss to get you to do something for me, usually. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I saw that emerging in terms of, you know, a skill. I had a great boss in there before who said, he said, you're so good at getting people who don't work for you. He said, I can't even get people who do work for me to do stuff mm-hmm. for me. But, you know, realizing that you have the skill to kind of get people set up around a common objective and influence them to kind of move in the, in the same direction. I think... That was when I, it suddenly dawned on me, you know, that this, that, you know, and honestly, my career that was kind of, you know, something along when I came out of there, moved into telecoms, into much more commercial roles, it went like that. 
Like the, and you know, so that idea that you know, match yourself with the right thing, you know, with your right skills, yeah. and play to your strengths, and you know, the the progress was exponential. You know, what, what, what quality do you think that is that you that you tapped into to to create that sense of you know direction for the people on the Is it enthusiasm? Is it um, a vision for where you're going to go? Is it um, just your sheer pers- force of personality? So, so I think I think there's a lot of you know I have a lot of energy, and if I get you know if I get convinced that this is the right thing to do uh, you know I think it's hard if I'm interacting with you not to get bought, in, bought into that um, and um, you know I am you know good at relating to people and understanding you know where you know so I don't have to work with a team of people that are like me in fact a lot of people I work with aren't like me at all um, but I think they tap into that energy but I then tap into them in terms of where they're coming from and how they like to work and how they like to operate and I, I, I think I started realising that that MBA and then subsequent to that that I was good at that, you know, that I could tune into people, potentially get the best out of them. So it wasn't actually the MBA, it wasn't the skills of the MBA, it was actually the interaction with the people on the course. Yes, and where there was, no, there was no hierarchy really, and it just, you know, it had to be about, you know... You know and it's how, how does it work, a, a full-time MBA? Is he literally in there... Yeah, Friday, started in th- September and finished in August, and you're literally oh, really? in there. You know, in the, you're in there all the time, and you know, working together, and you know, and no, as I said, no hierarchy. So it is all about influence. You know, um, my kids, if they ever listen to this, um, they always say, you know, you know, that's Spider-Man. You know, with great <laughs> powers comes great responsibilities. Uh, but it's it's that idea of you know l- using that power positively. You know, for good in terms of you know around mm-hmm. a common objective or moving everyone forward and everyone feeling sort of part of it. Yeah. You know, I know I think what the NBA gave me was this is the right industry for me, these are the right roles I should be doing, but the the interaction with that team taught me that, you know, I can do this and I can yeah. move people in the right direction. So is that a skill that you learn to practice on? Is that somebody that kind of that you actually focus on or is it actually just something that you think I guess it's the difference between uh, an innate skill or something that you can coach and teach. So, so I think I realised it was an innate skill during the MBA, and then I saw the value of it, uh, and and now I'm more aware of it, and I try to u- you know I try to use it, and I suppose I've honed it, and I'm probably a bit better at it than I was then, yeah. maybe a little bit more sophisticated in the way I might use it, but I know it's there, and I know how to do, you know how to do it, and I and I would call on it, you know we've like you know I'm I'm day thirteen as you know CEO of Air, um, we've a whole new team around the table. Um, you know, all promoted from within, you know, which is what I really wanted to do. 50-50 men and women, which is what I really wanted to do. Uh, and they're fantastic. But I know now it's my job and I know I can do that to get us aligned and move them forward in, in the right direction, despite whatever challenges. And some of them will be very big that we have in front of us. Yeah. Um, did you practice it? How did you actually get better at it and more sophisticated? That level of sophistication. I suppose you, because you get opportunity. You know, it's a bit of a circle. You know, so so I knew. You know, I, so I set my. So I come out of my MBA. I think I've got some good stuff going on here. I now know what I want to do. I get it as a result. I say, right, I'm not going back to financial services, and I'm not um, going back to IT because I've I've made the break now, and I know whatever. But of course, I have to pay the mortgage. <laughs> you know, the, those little facts. And uh, I went for a job at Aircell, and that was that was my dream job. So this ticked every box. It wasn't financial services; it was telecoms. It was flying. It was, it was going to be great. And uh, that's the one I wanted. And I got down to the last two, and I got the call to say you didn't get it. And so I had to take my next best job, which ticked one box. It wasn't a financial. It wasn't an IT role, but it was back in financial services. And a year later, I got a call from Aircell and to say, actually, when we said it, you were close. That was the truth, because I thought, you know, here's a recruiter saying it was really close, you're down to the last two, maybe not. It was really close, and the guy who got it has gone back to Bank of Ireland. And rather than go out to the market again, you know, are you still interested? Right. So 
So my inner voice said, you didn't want me last year. <laughs> and then my sensible voice said, um, and my husband said, you would have taken someone's arm off of that job last year. So, uh, so then I found myself in an op- where I had an opportunity then to start using those skills. And I, got to go- I went into Aircel at a time where mobile was flying. So everybody wanted a mobile phone. It was like prepaid, you'd just been launched. Yeah, so we're 97, this- 98 in Paratree. Uh, uh, yes, in 90, 98, just over the end of 98. And so, everyone- so selling them was easy because everyone wanted them. But what wasn't easy was saying, well, you know, Stuart spends 10 euros a month topping up and Jer actually spells a thousand because he, whatever and they had no sense if you were a corporate they knew you other than that they didn't know anything yeah. so I got to sell all that up all that insight in terms of who's doing what who should get an upgrade whatever and I had to build that team so that was my first chance outside of my Trinity now I kind of was the boss but it was my first chance to kind of use those skills and get that new team set up and that was a brilliant time because A we had budgets because sales were bringing in loads of money People thought we were geniuses. We'd, you know, we'd do a model. We'd come back and say, give one to him. Don't give one to him. Everyone thought we were fantastic. But it was a great way to kind of hone those skills because you're starting from scratch. You're yeah. building something new. You're hiring people. You're bringing people in from other parts of the company. And, you know, that was a team of 15. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, and then, I had a t- then I got the strategic marketing job. I had a team of 25. Then I had a baby and I came back and I got promotion. I had a team of 50. So, you know... It starts to, you know, you start to prove yourself in those roles. You're using that skill and then you get a bigger opportunity, you know, and, you, and like Stuart said, going to Leeds and you know, whatever. So, and every time I think you're honing, the, you know, you, the things that you bring in and your skills. When you say that your team isn't, uh, you know, they're not necessarily similar to you, at some point you need a, uh, to recognize that there's a trait here where um, the 10 people who I can influence today, I need them to then go off and influence 10 people and that yeah. needs to ripple out. So is there is there something that you look for when you're recruiting that you can, you see a little bit of yourself in people who will be able to carry your message to a wider audience? The biggest thing I look for is do I trust them? And is there, you know, is that the trust between us in terms of to have an honest exchange of views, to disagree on things, to agree. That's the biggest thing I look for. You know, it's, it's, someone was recommended, because I'm a complete optimist, but someone was recommending a book to me the other day, you know, Only the Paranoid Survive. And I've ordered it for one of my team because he sees doom and gloom around every corner. We couldn't be more different. But I have, I trust him completely and we have very honest. So I, I don't look for that trait in myself, um, but I know I trust him. And if he says, I'm bought in, I know what we're doing, I'm going to go and make that happen in his way. It's different to my way, which is fine, that he will go and do that so for me I think trust is the number one thing I think out of that if you have that you can kind of do anything you know um you know without that I think you know I, I never like to second guess I like to know if someone's leaving the room we've had a conversation that we've had that conversation and yeah. you know there's nothing else going on you know and yeah. they haven't felt I couldn't say it or whatever or, or I haven't felt that I couldn't say it yeah Trust is obviously clearly important in any environment but making sure that your message is the same message mm. that's getting out and that that kind of I think it can be the same message, but it doesn't have to be delivered in the same way, sure. you know, and I think yeah. that's the important thing, because nobody wants, you know, we don't want step- separate wives or no. all that, you know, whatever, you know, so I think, you know, that's important, but it's just someone's, you know, you trust them to know they're bought into what we're trying to do here, and they're bought into delivering the message, and they, they may deliver in a slightly different style than I would deliver, yeah. you know. Um, it sounds, to go back and, and not to, um, to, it sounds like the strategic marketing job you mentioned, mm. is that the big break? Like, the first, getting the first job is great, and you know, the timing is excellent, but actually then being recognised for that and flipping into something bigger. Yeah, so that's no doubt. So, you know, you, you, get to, you get to take the MBA and finally use those skills and whatever. 
and you get to set something up and you know in some way you know there's always a bit of luck in everything so what we were setting up you know in, in many ways wasn't rocket science but at the time it looked very you know whatever and that creates a platform for we, we get a new CEO in and the time we didn't have a marketing department we had bits of marketing done everywhere right. but he's from a marketing background so he believes we should have a marketing department he hires a marketing director an international marketing director and he says we have all these roles and you know we've got a strategic head of strategic marketing I, I, I was just back I haven't had my, my first son and I'm looking at these roles going should I, should I be applying for them? you know your head's a bit well should I be applying for them and I go actually I should be and that's the one with my name on it and all the work I'd done in setting up CRM or whatever gave me the platform and I got it and from then you know the next move was marketing director and uh, I was out on leave, maternity leave with my second son. I only have three sons. It's not like I have about 10. It sounds like that. But um, I was out on maternity leave and I got a call from my boss and he said, I know you're not out that long and I can't give you all the details, but there's an opportunity coming up and I just want you to know about it. You decide. So I came back early. My, my husband took uh, paternity leave and I came back early and that was the platform. That was my really big break. I became the marketing director of Vodafone Ireland okay. and I was around the management team then. So then I had a team of over 100 uh, you know, and that was real leadership in terms of your driving that or whatever. You and know. at a time when these brands are booming. Yeah, exactly. And you get to do, you know, you get to do absolutely, you know, loads. And I got to do what I really wanted to do, which was sponsor Dublin. And then I went to air. <laughs> so that was bad timing. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, but you know, lots of platforms for other opportunities. And then you're, you're honing those skills and you're using them and they're, they're helping you, you know, go that next level up. And do you change as a leader as that goes on? Or is it just actually just about getting better at the stuff that you're doing? I don't think I've changed. It's funny because I, when I when I knew I was going to become the air CEO and it was just announced a while back about designate, I rang some of my close friends that morning before it came out, and this guy I worked with, he worked with me in that first you know strategic marketing then marketing team back in Vodafone, and he you know he said I'm so pleased for you and what I really love is you're the same person you know that you were then you know you know you've had bigger jobs you've learned more or whatever but the authentic person that I knew back in whatever. 99 or Dara's one 2001 is the same person I know today and whatever and for me that was nice to hear that's yeah. what I think but maybe you have changed and you don't really know yourself but it was nice to hear back from him that that's, yeah. that's the case Authenticity is unbelievably important in a leader um, in a in a team environment in a sport environment um, players can see it straight away if you're not um, and you know they don't expect you to get everything right all the time mm. um, uh Credibility. Um, I, I have this theory about credibility and authenticity that um, you you enter if it's a scale of not to a hundred and zero is you have no authenticity or credibility and hundred is you are the most authentic, credible person. When you're new to an organisation, you enter at say fifty, let's call it, because of your track record and what people perceive about you, and you gain and lose points every with every interaction that you make. You know, so the trick is obviously to gain more points than you lose so you're on, a, on an upward curve you're 60, 70, 80 points and you know I've worked with um, coaches in the past who've come in with fantastic track records and leaders who've been fantastic track records and trophies in the back pocket and they've come in you think oh, that's going to be great you know in my mind they're, they're this and they're on 70 or 80 points in your mind and then suddenly they don't do this that well and they, they say they're going to do something and they don't do it um, they don't practice what they preach they don't walk what they walk um, and, uh, and gradually they lose points and eventually they lose credibility and eventually players in a sporting environment tune out to them and then eventually there's a players meeting and suddenly the coach is gone. Um, but it works on the flip side. So, you know, if you're working your way up the ladder um, in an organisation, there's absolutely no doubt that, you know, Caroline can get to be CEO of AIR and I can be, become head coach of England. 
if you are, you do what you say you're going to do, you're honest, you're inspiring, um, you are forward-thinking and planning, and you are authentic, and people, you don't change your personality. You know, I'm 100% different from Eddie Jones, as an example, or I'll be very different from Joe Smith, or I'll be very different from Andy Farrell, or whatever. And um, I like to think that um, if you asked my school friends um, when, from when I was 18 and my university friends, you know, did I change from the person they knew when I became an England coach, they would say no. Um, the perception of you changes. And that's the art, I think, is to make sure that um, you don't allow the perception, particularly in my world, where the media create, can create the perception that, they, that, that it doesn't become reality. You've got to fight against that because... You know, the, the perception about me grew in England about, you know, I'm sort of head teacher type and very serious and studious because all I never smile when the camera's on me. But actually, they, you know, they don't know the real you. Yeah. Um, but that, that's a hard one to control. You can't control it. Mm. Learning not to, or learning to live with not controlling it. Yeah, yeah. It, it, yeah and certainly, well, you know this, because obviously in the sporting world, you know, you, you know how um, we had the conversation before, didn't we, about, you know, the perception is this and then this media outlet runs it and suddenly perception becomes reality. Yeah. It's very, very hard to stop that when you're on, on your own. Um, and, uh, yeah, you've got to learn to accept that not everyone is going to know the real you. But what is important is that the people who work for you know the real you and that they can see that you are consistent and can be trusted to be stable in tough times and you're not going to overly react and emotion react over here and, uh, and that you'll, be, you'll do what you say you're going to do. That's the most important thing. Yeah. That relationship with the media is something that obviously it becomes, as, as you become the CEO, I guess, it becomes more important. Or does it? Or is it something that you have to worry about or think about? I think it does become important because I think it's, you know, it's important that you are willing to step up and you know, put you know, the plan of the organisation or some face to the organisation and defend the organisation or explain you know, our strategy. So I think... I think that's important, you know, um, I think you can't, you know, we get the press clippings every day, you know, we go through them obviously, but I think you can't fixate, you know, it, yeah. you know, because, you know, people don't always understand it, you know. But you only ever get a, a you only ever get a soundbite, like if, there, if there's a big announcement, it's mm. on the nine o'clock news or the six o'clock news, and yeah. it's, a, it's a split second, or you can sit down for an hour with a print journalist mm. and they'll write 1,200 words, and you'll have said 25,000 words and they're picking out 1,200 yeah. that it's going to make the most interesting stuff. Like, yeah. but I, I still think you have to do it. I think you have to be brave enough to put yourself out there, but I think you, you can't obsess about it. And it is what it is. You know, I think if you're true to yourself, you know what you're doing. You're, you're doing it for the right reasons. Then you just, you know, you just do it. I think, you know, because I, I think one of the problems I, I would have felt when I first joined Air from so Vodafone was, you know, flying global company, tons of confidence. When I went into Aircom, then, you know. Nobody. I just thought people had lost their confidence. You know, they'd be knocked around and changes of owners and all this good stuff. And people didn't believe they could win. And, you know, that saying, if you don't believe you can win, you can't win. Mm. And, you know, and confidence is built over time now. And, you know, I think we're getting back there. Um, but also, I think there was a bit of mentality because of that confidence that people would kind of hide, you know, and we wouldn't stick our heads above the parapet. I don't believe in that. I think you have to stand up and be counted and you have to say your piece. And if people don't like it, they don't like it. You can't obsess about how they write it. But yeah. I think, you know, the answer is not to hide or, or not to say anything. I think you have to be brave and you have to, you know, and if you're proud of what you're doing and what you're trying to do, I think you should be, you know, confident enough to say that. And, you know, people can write what they write. So how do you go about restoring confidence in, in the company then? Because, you know, that, that's a separate issue really from the stuff that we've already talked about it's like making sure that everybody has some sense that we can win well I think you start to you start to you know do the things you say you were going to do so you know again you know if you think post examiner should be said we're going to do all these things and we did them 
and suddenly we've done them and we were the first to launch 4G and suddenly we have this fibre network and people are going on to it. So suddenly, you know, you can tell people that, but they have to see it. Mm. So I think you have to, you know, identify those things, say this is what we're going to do and then you have to make sure you do them, you yeah. know, and don't be afraid to talk about them. And I think there was a sense as well that I see these roadshows around the company, country talking about fibre and uh, explaining the benefits, not the technology, you know, whatever, you know and, uh, and people just say, you can't do that, can't, you can't go around. You know, people are going to give out to you, you know, because they don't have it or, you know, Jared doesn't have it, Stuart has it. I, that is not a good reason for not going. I know Jared doesn't have it because we've only done 1.6 and there's 2.4 million homes in the co- company. But, to, but that is not a good reason for me hiding back in HSQ and not going out and sharing our plans with people. You know, and like, so, you know, you make your plans, you do what you say you're going to do and you have the confidence to go out and tell people. And, and yeah, everybody doesn't like it. I had a very interesting uh, interaction with some Cavan farmers <laughs> there a few months ago. And, uh, and one of them told me, if he, now he lives in the middle of nowhere. I went into Google Maps, like, honestly, fiber, I don't know. But he said, uh, he, he, I, I said, he, was, he gave me quite a hard time. It was fine. I was well able to defend myself. But I was, I was quoting Anthony Daly. He always he used to say to me that, um, you know, uh, you never go into battle without red meat in your belly. Like the backs of you all having rashes and sausages before an all-on final. And, the, you know, the frogs would be there with their muesli. So I quoted Anthony to your man. I said, I wish I'd stopped for like a sausage roll on the way down here. You know, the time he gave you. And he said, you won't believe it. I'm a pig farmer if you ever get me fiber you'll get the best pork you've ever had or whatever but it's just, but i think getting out there and telling your story and being brave enough to do it is important and whatever you know and defending your position you know because yeah, it gives you credibility if, it does yeah if, if you disappear they'll continue to say the same stuff anyway yeah exactly you say, hang on a second yeah and maybe another time they might write about you know what you're saying or they'll take on your point of view i've yeah. never regretted doing any of those things even when it's got a bit testy i've never regretted putting myself out there yeah. that, that, that was the very word that went through my mind then you know as a leader you have to have a point of view now not everyone's going to agree with it but you have to have a point of view and you've got to be able to you know articulate it and and defend it defend it um and you one of the key things i think about going into a leadership position is you have to have clarity of your point of view before you get into the leadership position so in a coaching world you know that's like going into a a team without being clear on the game plan that you'd like to the way you'd like to see the game played or your off-field philosophy about how you see the values of the organization um so clarity on your point of view Having a point of view and clarity on it before you step into the leadership position is fundamental, I think. And then, let's say, this is it, this is where we're going. And, um, you know, I, there's so many similarities with what Caroline said, you know, team loan confidence, um, you know, with England, um, or even Leinster to a certain extent. You know, and I remember coming in saying, I think we can win the European Cup. And I remember them all looking at me and saying, against Connacht in the final. We didn't do so well in Europe last year. You know, and I, but then you say, this is what we're going to do, and look at the group here, and look at the international caps we've got in the group here. Yeah, and you say, I absolutely 100% believe we can do it. And then slowly things begin to change, and people begin to believe in what you're saying. It's not an overnight process, obviously. No. Yeah. Oh, no, 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 no. And certainly with England, you know, go, going back to the sort of the, the media as well, you know, the gap between ourselves and the media had grown hu- hugely. Um, and I tried to narrow that gap, even though a lot of the criticism. Um, was to come my way. Um, I don't regret doing that, and because um, the you know we had some off the record briefings, not with any one particular media outlet. So I didn't play favourites. Everyone came in. This is what we're trying to do. Um, this is how we're trying to play the game, and this is try- how we build it off the off the field. And the media really appreciated that insight and the ability to have the debate, you know, off the record. And then obviously I was then judged on the record, you know, by the quality of the results and performances. Um, and I think you know it, it allowed me to use the media to get my message across to a grassroots rugby fan, to, you know, the community game about what we were trying to achieve. 
Um, and I had to put myself, I put myself out there, you know, as Caroline has just said. Um, the bit I do wish in hindsight I'd done differently is when the World Cup finished. And there was a period between the um, final game, the Uruguay game, and the review started. And it was about five weeks, and um, I was told not to engage with the media because it would add more oxygen to the story. Mm. In the meantime, there were a whole load of conspiracy theories that grew that I never, mm. I never addressed. And it wasn't, you know, anyone's reputation getting damaged. Well, everyone's reputation getting damaged, but mine was part of that. And I felt I could have defended the organisation, defended the team, defended the players, and said, actually, that's not true. But I, but I wasn't allowed to, and maybe I should have been more forceful and said, listen, I'm doing a press conference, whether yeah. you like it or not. Mm. Uh, and and so then perception becomes reality, and you've got no right to reply to some of the things that have been said, and uh, you know, in hindsight, I should have handled that differently. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly the same thing. People mm. will be annoyed, but if you go out and talk to them and say, well, this is what we were trying to do, then mm. at least they have the information and go, well, it seems like a sensible decision yeah. that you're making yeah. there. Yeah. 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 And, and actually, and I'm not, not just saying it because we're here in a you know, radio station, but actually I find the radio the best medium for that, because the print media, what would happen is you would say, you know, you'd say you're... 20,000 words and they'd take the, the whatever 1,000 to suit the agenda that they wanted to portray whereas if you're out on the radio or whatever TV less so because it's shorter shorter mm. timeline um, then uh, you can you can get your point of view across and people hear it from your voice rather than through the there's context yeah it, but rather than through the journalist's yeah. opinion um, or the agenda of the, the particular newspaper or whatever so I think um, as well that people respond to people and you know I've never even in a testy, maybe hostile environment when we've gone in, you know, and it's not like we've been able to solve everyone's problems when we're in there, like we don't have a magic wand, but I think people have always left, you know, in better shape than they arrived, better informed, there's human people who obviously care about what they're doing, they haven't done everything yet, yeah. and they've actually, you know, they've come down here on a wet Monday afternoon to talk to us about mm -hmm. it, you know, so I've never felt that was, you know, ever a bad use of time or a bad use of engagement. It you turns know? out you're on the same side. Yeah, absolutely. We're trying to do the same things. You don't think I'm doing it fast enough. You wish I'd do your house first and all that good stuff. But, you know, I, I, I always left feeling that was a good thing to do, you know, no matter how many tough questions we got. There was one last bit that I just wanted to bring up with you. You talked about um, coming from Kulak and, and from a family that didn't have a tradition of sending kids to um, third level. What do we as a country need to do more for people who are coming through the system? My wife teaches in Kulak and she says there's no difference between the kids who are there and the kids five miles down the road, but the number who go to school, who end up going to college in one versus the other is massive. So it's, 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 it's huge. I mean, that's funny. I was, I was thinking about this because I was thinking about today. And, you know, when I grew up, you know, even though my parents, you know, didn't have that background, but I do remember my mother and she, and I wouldn't consider her a particularly confident person, but she used to say to all of us, you know, you're as good as everybody and better than most. So that she was always kind of instilling that in us in terms of, you know, when you can kind of do it. And from an early age when I said I wanted to go to university, they got back in, they got in behind me to do that. You know, they may have not done it themselves or knew necessarily at the time how to necessarily go about it, but they, you know, they, they backed me. And the school as well supported that ambition and supported them in helping me realise that ambition. So I think there's a huge lot of work with the, the you know, that whole group, the parents, you know, the parents are key and the school is key. And how do you, you know, how do you bring that together? Because I had an next door neighbour and she was smarter than me and the teachers could see that but it didn't have the same backup in terms of parents. And the teachers had like, after, before there was ever an after school homework club, they had that all set up for her to try and kind of keep her going. But it failed because it, it was only one leg of the stool. It wasn't enough yeah. on its own. So I think, you know, so I think it is that, that coming together of, of parents and teachers around that child and that child's ambition. 
But the other thing I think is today we're obsessed with university and, you know, kids go to university who would be much better off becoming an electrician or a plumber. And I think that's parents. They, you know, they, there's this thing about, you know, my son's gone to college as opposed to my son's whatever. And we all need to rethink about it because it's about, like, as it was for me, matching my skills with the right thing, you know. Um, you whatever know, journey it is to And whatever journey is for you is, is the journey for you. You know, my oldest son wants to be a chef, you know. And, uh, you know, so, uh, like, so I think parents have to wake up to that. But I, but I think, you know, to get the kids from some of those areas, more of them, you know, participating, it is at the school and the parents together, and, you know. And also, I think, you know, this idea that if I can do it, they can do it. You well, know, this, this role say, model of, you I know... Was, I was about to say, the role models in... Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm, I really hate the idea of sports people being role models because actually that's a skill that they have that they've done for millions and millions of hours. Mm-hmm. But actually, in real life, role models who have come through systems are far more valuable to people. Yeah. No, I, th- I think that's, that, that, that's absolutely true because we all like to say, you know, I'm sh- she's not that different to me. He's not that different to me. If, if he could do it, we, we had the Silver Surfers in, in air last week and a 99-year-old man w- won an award because he delivers meals on wheels for the elderly in his community I kid you not he's 99 but we were saying a load of them left and said we're going to put in for awards next year because you know if he can do it I can do it you know and it's that whole idea you know of someone to kind of follow and we get a lot of that feedback when we do talk on women's issues or whatever you know because there's less I suppose senior leader commercial role models in the female space than there are you know so I think women really like to see that because, again, they, they look and say, well, that's a path I could potentially follow. Yeah. Do you feel that's the, the importance of role models? Do you feel like you, you become a role model as you go along? Yeah, I mean, you know, if I could wave a magic wand, what would I like to do most? It would be to um, help um, educate the educational system and people involved in education to give people, you know, that was the best bit of teaching. You know, the best bit, well, there was loads of great bits of teaching, but the bits that I really, really enjoyed was taking the kid who was from a, you know, a working class background from a tough estate and trying to send them on the right path. You know, I remember I had this one, was one lad, um, Matty Ray, and he was um, 14, 15, and he was just beginning to veer off the wrong path. And, you know, he was beginning to turn from school and, and not come in and everything else. And I said to him, listen, Matty, you know, you're a brilliant rugby player and you could help me coach this um, 12, two under 12s. Why don't you come and help me down on it? And then he did this and this and this, and then he got an um, apprenticeship at, uh, um, as an electrician and an academy scholarship agreement at the local rugby league team. And, and suddenly his life went in that direction. Sure, and, yeah. you know, I remember, you know, I remember Matty Ray absolutely to a T now, and I saw a photo on Facebook the other day. I've not seen or heard of him. He's there, he lives in Sydney, wife, two kids. I'm thinking, brilliant. Yeah. And, that's, and that's, you know, that's the bit I want to do. So if you can use your uh, influence you know because of the opportunities that you've you've had yeah. to try and inspire other people to go down this route um that's the that's the true value of getting to a leadership position and don't be afraid to ask for help that was the other great bit of advice i saw you give oh absolutely I, you know I, I nobody i've ever asked for help has said no to me and uh, you know i've had coaches and, and mentors i think people generally are happy to help and you know are, are flattered by the fact that someone thinks they have something to add and, and generally they, they absolutely step up yeah good stuff this was great thanks very much for uh, <laughs> sharing all of that with us today it was, uh, it was absolutely brilliant um, so that's this week's Leaders Questions with Stuart Lancaster we'll be back next week with another one thanks Leaders Questions with Stuart Lancaster thanks to Cisco Systems at Exertis Ireland providing a secure intelligent platform for digital business to hear more visit intelligentit.ie